Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Hey, if you have a Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to finish 1 Timothy today. And uh, this has been a great study. I'm so encouraged by what the Lord's been doing in 1 Timothy, and we come to a close today. This is exciting, man, to close a book of the Bible. And uh, to, how many of you guys actually went through all of it with us? Verse by verse, all the way through 1 Timothy. What a, it's a cool thing, man. You're probably used to that if you go to Calvary Chapels, but if you're not, it's kind of a cool thing to go verse by verse through the Bible, and you get to see some of those obscure passages that people like to avoid because they're hard to talk about, which we, uh, uh, we came across a couple of them, actually, in 1 Timothy. So uh, I'm thankful that they're behind us, but there's more to come from where that comes from. Paul likes to put people like, you know, in those situations. He likes to talk about those subjects because they're important. And God has uh, something to say about much of what our world wants to fight about. It's, and he puts it in the word of God for us to understand so that we don't have to wonder what his will is for us in specific areas when it comes to roles of men and women and all these kinds of things. You know, so we want to surrender ourselves to what the scriptures say and not what we think, right? So here we go. First uh, Timothy chapter 6. Stand with me. We're going to pick it up in verse... 17 today, 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul exhorting Timothy says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Father, we thank you for your word now. We ask you to come and speak to our hearts, Lord. We desire to hear from you and we pray that you would just help us to set aside, Lord, our own opinions about things, and we want to just hear directly from you on how we can apply this passage into our lives. Father, we thank you for helping us now, Lord, to rightly divide the word by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You can be seated. So as we come to a close in the book of First Timothy, Paul is exhorting Timothy, he's commanding Timothy, what are considered some final charges or instructions related to ministry. You know, we often say that the last words of somebody are probably, oftentimes, their most important words. And I think that's true oftentimes when we come through, through the Bible and, and there's a th sort of the summary of what's being said in the book at the end there. And in this particular case, Paul is exhorting Timothy. He's just simply reiterating a lot of what he's already said. He's already talked about these things. You know, he's gone into depth about some of these things. But there are specific things that he really wants to drive the point home with. The Holy Spirit is saying, Timothy, you need to really focus on these things. And that's what we're going to consider here, these final charges. You can divide these verses up into two specific categories. There's charges relating to the rich 
And then there's charges relating to Timothy personally. So we begin by looking at uh, the charges that Paul has speaking to Timothy to, to command those who are rich within the body there in Ephesus. Look at with me at verse 17. It says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul begins by letting us know who he's writing to specifically when he gives these charges here in verses 17 through 19. He says, as for the rich in this present age, in this present age, it's, it's an age that he's speaking of. What age is he talking about? He's talking about this age. He's talking about the church age. He's talking about the age that we exist in, this age. He's talking to those people who have, some, have been blessed with some sort of financial blessing, that they are wealthy, they are rich in this present age. He wants those who are rich in this life to think carefully about those riches. He wants them to be careful with those riches. He wants them to understand that just because you have wealth on this, in this life does not mean that it will translate into eternity. It's very, very important. And uh, so Paul, Paul gives these people some specific exhortations. Um, these folks here, uh, there, there's folks in this world that are maybe rich in this world, but they're poor in eternity. There's people who are poor here, but are rich in eternity. And then there's people who are wealthy here and wealthy in eternity. You know, and God wants us to be content, as he talked to Paul about earlier, talked to Timothy about this, about being content where we are, to know that God is the giver of all things. And so we just surrender whatever it is that he gives us, we surrender to, we be, we're good stewards of, and we're content with. We're not seeking after riches, but if God blesses us, then we have an incredible responsibility. And that's what Paul ends with here. He's sort of transitioning from up in verses 3 through 11 where he talks about riches of this world and all these kinds of things and the love of money ultimately is the root of all evil. It's not having money, by the way. It's the love of money. It's the pursuit of money that, will, um, that is the root of all evil. But Paul tells the people that do have money here in Ephesus, and I think he's also speaking beyond that to us in this present age that we have to be stewards of the wealth that we've been given. Wealth is an incredibly deceptive thing. Incredibly deceptive thing. Uh, Jesus even said how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because their salvation's different? No. Because wealth gives you a sense of no need. It gives you this sense of self-sufficiency, like you don't need anything. And I think that if there's any testimony of that, it's the United States of America I think, you know, the gospel has gone forward through our country, and, um, you know, we have on our dollar bills, it says, in God we trust, really? In God we trust, and yet we're an incredibly wealthy country, and we're, we're heading away from the Lord with everything that we have as a nation. And there's a small remnant that is running towards God, and you want to be that small remnant. It doesn't matter what you have, what possessions you have. If you have some sort of wealth, you want to use it for the glory of the God, for his kingdom, uh, Jesus said it was difficult because a person, 
uh, is not, be, you know, wealth can breed self-sufficiency. And that's what Paul wants to address here in our verses, uh, the first exhortations here to the rich. Now, some of you are tempted to check out right now, thinking, well, that, that's, I'm not rich, so this doesn't apply to me. And uh, that's not true. Let, let, me, uh, let me do a little bit of comparison for you. Do you know that you, every person in this room is within at least 30%, the 30 percentile of the world's economy? Do you know that? Like, if you want to put it into scale, you might not have much compared to the person next to you, but let's put it in a global scale, and let's see really how rich we are. Right, so, so check this out. The, in 2018, the median household income globally was, take a guess. Huh? $2,100 a year. $2,100 a year. Do you know what the median uh, um, average salary for an American household here was? $63,179 per year. All, all Americans, even the poorest of Americans, are put within the top 37% of the world's income distribution, and the vast majority of Americans uh, rank within the top 10% of global income distribution. You, you might not live in the greatest area. You might not live in the, the nicest house, but listen, I promise you, you don't know what poor is until you go to a third world country and you walk through the slums. Then you'll know what, what, what poor is. I remember the, uh, the first time I went to China and I was there sourcing some stuff and I had to go outside of, you know, when you're in the bigger city, it's harder to see, uh, particularly now. Um, you know, when I, the first time I went to China, it was 2005. You know, so the first time I went, we, we kind of were out on the, in the countryside. And when you go to Shanghai, I mean, uh, you know, the, 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 when I first landed there, the road was dirt from the airport to there. Now it's all paved, built up, and all that kind of stuff. But when you, when you go there in the bigger cities, uh, it's hard to see the, the, the um, poverty. But when you go outside and you walk through these factories, you know, we purchase dietary supplements. You walk through these factories, you see people living there. Like, that isn't just their job. That's their house. And you walk through the kind of, they try and steer you away, but I'm the kind of person, hey, I want to see this. I want to see what, how people live. I want to see, I want to, I want to kind of get a, get a grasp of, of how these people live. I'm walking through that. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, totally humbling to think about how I'm living back home in comparison to these people and, and how ungrateful oftentimes I am for what I have. And yet I see these people living like that, 10 people in a, a 300 square foot room, one room, 10 people, grandmas and grandpas and kids and parents and all these kinds of things. I remember walking through uh, the slums of India uh, and, and just seeing the people, just the, the, just the filth and all of that and just the, just the way that people live there. And, and it's incredibly humbling and it makes you grateful for what you have. You could live in, you know, the living conditions in, in some, most of these slums in these areas are unbelievable, like incomparable to anything you've ever seen in your life. And it's just, just amazing. I'm not here to put a guilt trip on you. I'm here to bring some truth to the matter, actually, to help us understand where do we really sit when it comes to this context of being wealthy. Listen, we're incredibly wealthy people. And uh, so we want to we listen up to what Paul has to say here relating to this. There's four specific charges, four commands that he has to the rich in these first two verses. The first charge is not to be haughty, 
The word haughty literally means to be high-minded, to think lofty of oneself, to, be, to have an exalted opinion of oneself. It can be easily deemed as being prideful. Prideful. Pride is, listen, not just a problem for the wealthy. It's a problem for everyone. But it certainly is a problem for those people who have riches because riches are deceitful. They, make you, they can easily make you feel more superior than others. And that was the point of, uh, of what Paul was saying early in chapter 6. He was saying, listen, it's not wrong to have wealth, but it's a serious responsibility. And you have to keep yourself humble. You have to make sure that you don't allow yourself to sort of become in, a, in an elite class of people because you have what? Because you have money? Who cares? You know, Paul says in verse 7 of chapter 6, None of that's going with you. You living for this world, this is the best it gets then. But guess what? In eternity, you can't take that stuff with you. And so it doesn't really matter what you have here, but we have to guard our hearts from being prideful in this way. One of the best ways to guard your heart is to remind yourself constantly, and I mean constantly, about where everything you have comes from. Paul says, if you're taking notes in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says this to the Corinthians. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Remind yourself who the giver of all things is. And if he's the giver of all things, then therefore I report to him with all things. And I want to, uh, you know, I want to do my best to be a steward of those things. We need to be faithful with those things. Well, not only are the rich not to be haughty, but Paul goes on here and he says they're not to set their hopes on the um, uncertainties of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I think this is incredibly dangerous for all of us in this room to, to put our earthly hope. It's easy for us to put our earthly hope in a bank account in a 401k, in our stocks, in cryptocurrency, whatever riches it might be. It doesn't matter what it is. It's so easy for us to become dependent on that. Well, let me, exp let me explain it in an illustration to you. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel better? Do you feel more comfortable when you have a little money in your pocket versus when you don't? Does that make your life better? If we're honest, we would say yes. Most of us, we would say, of course I feel better. You see, the problem is that money provides a false sense of security. It provides a false sense of security. We have to be um, you know, very, very careful that we're, we're saying, I'm trusting you, Lord, but we're clenching on to the dollar that's in our pocket, unwilling to do what God tells us to do with it because it's our last dollar. And the Lord says, that's not trusting me. That's not trusting me. You trust me in, the, in, in sacrifice. That's where you really trust me. When you give, me, give over to me those things that really, really cost you sacrificially, that's when you're trusting me. If we put our security in money, it will produce a false sense of security. It will produce a worldly mindset that will end up in us falling Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25, whoever trusts in his riches will fall. Do you know that's an emphatic statement? Will fall. It's not a question. It's emphatic. 
It will happen. You will fall. Why? Because riches will lead you down a hole and it will lead you down a dead end where you will fall. Trust in riches is, is like, tr it's trusting in a false idol that cannot guarantee security. Nothing in this world can promise you security except for God himself and the gospel. It's the only thing that can provide the security that you and I long for. So don't put your trust in an idol, as in in riches. Put your trust in God alone. Why? Because he is reliable. He is consistent. Riches are uncertain, Paul says here. Literally, they're unreliable and inconsistent. But God is not like that. He will never let you down. He is so consistent. He is, he is so trustworthy. He is so reliable that we could give our last, last dime and we could trust the Lord and know that he said he was going to provide for my needs. Go home and read John, uh, Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus is speaking about uh, God providing. He says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear or any of these things. Don't worry about those things. Uh, God will provide for them. He promises to. And yet we say, okay, God, but I'm clinging on to this like every, with everything that I got. I'm trusting you, though. <laughs> no, we're not. That's the reality of it. And, and, and Paul just sort of brings that to light here by explaining to us the reality of the riches of this world. They are uncertain. Do you know that your money can be gone as fast as it's given? Be gone. It could be gone. Your stock. I mean, how many of you guys, um, you know, were, were things, things were looking pretty good for you in January, and then March came around, and all of a sudden the stocks went boom. And you're like, oh man, what the heck? And all of a sudden, you, you know, people commit suicide over stuff like this. Where is their security? It's not in the Lord. It's definitely not in the Lord. It's in this world. And if that's all you're living for, then you're, it's going to be a horrible ride. It's going to be a horrible ride because the riches of this world are uncertain. Here's what you need to know about riches, though. Listen to what Paul says. He, speaking of God, richly provides us with everything. Now listen, it didn't stop there to enjoy. He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. To enjoy. There, there are people, there are Christians in this world that think it's a sin to enjoy life. Do you know that? Like, they live their lives in, in the Eeyore mentality. You know, it's, it's just like, we're not supposed to have fun here. We're not of this world. We're not of this world. And, you know, and, and, and the next thing you know, it's like, the, you know, there, there's no passion for anything because we're not of this world. And everything I have, you know, I, I, I give away. And I'm not saying that's wrong. That's between you and the Lord. But here's what I would say. I would say that, the Bible tells us that he's richly provided us with everything to enjoy, to enjoy. Now, for some of you, it's a thoroughly enjoying to give everything that you have, and you enjoy that, and that's something that God blesses you. You know, you're, you're just so blessed by doing that, and praise God for that. You know, that, that's how you enjoy things. Some of you, and, and, and you know, that you love to go see God's creation, so you go to the Grand Canyon, or you go to the beach, or you go wherever, and you enjoy what God has richly provided you with. You know, we have all different types of things that we like to do, but it is not a sin to enjoy life. God has richly provided us with everything to enjoy. He wants us to enjoy. Listen, he's a father. God is a father, and he gives blessings to his kids to make them 
feel special. He, he gives blessings to his kids in a lot of different ways. But, but the one thing that we have to be careful of is that we don't so enjoy life that we forget about God. Some people, they fall into that category where they're so enjoying life, they claim this passage and they, the only thing they really circle in their Bible is to enjoy. And they don't remember that he richly provides. And when God richly provides, there's a stewardship with that. But he wants you to enjoy it as a father would want his child to enjoy certain things. But there's also, he, wants to, he, want, he doesn't want you to uh, do it in a way that's gonna be a detriment to yourself. So there's, there's a balance he provides everything for you to enjoy, but he wants to be the one that you're enjoying. Don't make enjoyment pleasure your pursuit. That's not your pursuit. God is your pursuit always. And in pursuing him, you will find pleasure, enjoyment, those sorts of things. But don't ever make that your God. People do that all the time. They trade God for enjoyment. Live your life for him. Invest in kingdom work. Enjoy the things that he's given you to do and all the things that he's richly provided to you and acknowledge that it comes from him, amen? That brings us to a third command here where in verse 18 he says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Because God is the giver of all things, we must be ready to share genu- uh, generously, and also um, we must be at all, at all times ready to share. He said we are to do good, literally, to be noble, to be excellent. It means, it's a means of pleasing God, according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are what? Pleasing to God. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The rich are to be rich in good works. The kind of works Paul had in mind here is twofold. Generosity and contribution. First, the richer to be genuine, generous. That, that means to give liberally, to, to give bountifully, to be sacrificial from an unrestrained heart. Secondly, we're to be ready to share at all times. Something we have to be intentional about. It's like, you know, we, we should be waking up asking the Lord, who can I help today, Lord? Who are you going to put in my path? How can I help somebody today, Lord? I'm ready to help, you know, um, in, in, in anticipation of God opening a window so that you can share with somebody something, whatever it is. Maybe it's a word. Maybe it's finances. Maybe whatever it is. I don't know. But always being ready to share in good works. I, I saw this happen on December 23rd. Uh, I got a call from somebody, um, a, one of my, a friend of mine, and he said, hey, my mother-in-law gave me 500 bucks, and she wants to bless somebody, you know, some family, preferably that had kids, you know, for Christmas or whatever, so do you know anybody? And I said, well, not off the top of my head, I don't, but I could throw that out there. I said, hey, I told him, hey, I know a guy that's trying to adopt some kids and, you know, could go towards that, you know, or whatever, and he said, well... I think she really wants it to go to a family specifically for Christmas, you know, um, somebody who's in need. So I, I threw it out on our internal Facebook, our private page. I said, hey, is there anybody in need here in our body? And um, I, got a, I got a response back from somebody that my wife and I know, um, a good friend of ours in the community, Christian lady. She's a, she lost her husband. Um, and, and she just told us, hey, I've been sick for like a month and I've been off work and I just 
actually took custody of my granddaughter. I have no idea how I'm going to do this, but, but I'm really in need. And I said, oh, okay, well, I think that we have something for you. And then uh, my wife had mentioned to me somebody else, and, you know, and, and this, this is just the way the Lord works. And so I thought, oh, okay, well, we can split it then. We'll give it this other family that we know of that is in super big need, you know. Um, we said, well, w- let's see what the Lord, you know, let's see what w- we'll give half to, half to them and half to the other family. And um, in the meantime, you know what happened? That $500 turned into 2000 Like that. Literally. Like, like I was, I, literally, I, I just threw it out there and I was just kind of, we were just kind of waiting to see what the Lord was going to do. And he multiplied it by four. And what happened was somebody heard somebody else was giving 500 bucks, so they said, I'll match that. And then somebody else said, well, I'll match that too. And then somebody else said, I'll match that. And before you know it, both these people have, a, have $1,000 on December 24th because God saw their need. And it was in this idea of doing good and being rich in good works and being generous and ready to share that, that this happened. God knows your need. They didn't have to ask. Isn't it incredible when God comes and knocks on your door, hey, what do you need? He wants us to come to him. That's not my point, but my point is that God knows. And sometimes he comes to you and he says, hey, what do you need? I want to provide for you out of nowhere. That's the Lord. That's the one thing that I love about, I I love a lot of things about Hudson Taylor, but that's one of the things that I love about Hudson Taylor. If you've never read his biography, it's written by his son, and uh, it, it is an incredible book, the Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, and his spiritual secret was prayer, but there's a story in this book about Hudson Taylor was, um, he, he was in his home, and he got a knock on his door, and somebody came and said, will you come pray for my wife? She's dying, and, and so Hudson Taylor got his jacket on, and he said, sure, I'll come, and, and he remembers having a coin in his pocket. It was the last coin he had. He didn't have any more money. He didn't, you know, so um, he had that coin in his pocket and he went to this house and he was led down this dingy old, to this old dilapidated building, you know, to basically a slum area. And he, he went into this home and um, the person said, uh, he, when he went in, he only, he saw no furniture. There was nothing in this place except for a candle that was lighting the room and a lady laying on the floor that was dying. And the husband said, hey, we haven't had anything to eat for, for days. We have no money. And Hudson Taylor said, why didn't you call for the priest to come? And he said, because we didn't have a coin to give him. Because we couldn't give him anything. We have no money. We have nothing. The only person that we thought of was you. So we, we asked you to come pray for us. And, and so he put his hands in his pockets and he began to say, and this, these were his words. He said, uh, you do not need to despair. We have a God in heaven who cares for us and loves us if we believe in him and place our trust in him. And as he was saying that, he was clinching on to that coin in his pocket. And he, and he just became incredibly convicted as he was holding on to that coin saying, God in heaven who cares for us and loves us, if we believe in him and, and place our trust in him, he will provide for us. And he's holding on to this coin with everything that he has. And he went on and he prayed for the lady and at the end of the end of the prayer, he's still incredibly convicted that God is saying, you need to give that coin up. And so Hudson Taylor takes the coin out of his pockets, his last coin, he gives it to the man, and he says, buy some food or whatever you guys need to help you along the way. He goes back to his home, 
And as soon as he got home, he, he started to read the Bible. And he came to Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17, which says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deeds. And so in that moment, he knew that God was going to repay him at, at some point. You know, he didn't know when. He woke up the next day. He started to eat his last bowl of porridge. And he said, I have no idea what I'm going to eat from here on out. But the Lord convicted my heart. I did what the Lord asked me to do. And uh, just a few hours later, he got a knock on the door. It was his landlord. And she said, hey, the mailman stopped by and dropped off this package for you. And he grabbed the package. It was unmarked. He didn't know who it was from or where it had come from. He wasn't expecting anything. So he's kind of puzzled by all of this. And, and so he says, well, thank you. You know, he brought it inside. And he, he cut the package open. And, and he, fi he finds a pair of gloves wrapped in some silk paper. And he's like, that's strange. Why do I have gloves? You know, he pulls the gloves out and a gold coin falls out of the, out of the gloves onto the ground. And, and he thought, God repaid me for being kind to the poor. I gave them a silver coin and he gave me a gold one. And, and that's the way that it works. That's the way that it works when we are rich in good works and we're generous and we're ready to share the Lord bless us. Not necessarily like that. It doesn't happen like that all the time. That's his experience, and, you know, that's awesome. That's a testimony of what God can do. But listen, I'll tell you this. You'll never know until you do it. You will never experience this until you do it yourself. You can live on somebody else's experiences, and we can clap and hoop and all that kind of stuff, but why don't you make your own? Why don't you create your own experiences as the Lord leads you in your life and he calls you to do these things. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share, Paul tells uh, those who are rich. And he goes on here to tell us where to store up our treasures in verse 19. Thus, store up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul is urging the rich in Ephesus in this present age to have a mind for the future. He's saying you need to be thinking about the future. You need to be investing in the future. And uh, th this is the same kind of thing that uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, whether neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, what do you do with your resources? What, what are you doing with the things that God has entrusted you with? What, what, what Jesus said, what Paul is saying, is you should be investing in the kingdom of heaven. You should be investing in those things. Now, let me give you an illustration to, to, to make this clear. Um, how many of you guys... Uh, uh, or know anything about Bitcoin. Anybody know anything about Bitcoin? So Bitcoin came out, let me just give you a, a little bit of information. In 2009, January 2009, Bitcoin came out, it was worth an eighth of a cent. An eighth of a cent, right? So, and everybody was saying it was like, nothing's gonna happen, it's never gonna be worth anything, right? So fast forward 11 years to today, and Bitcoin is worth $27,000 a Bitcoin, right? Eighth of a cent to $27,000 in 11 years. Okay, so if you invested 100 bucks in 2009 
at an eighth of a cent, your investment today would be worth $337,500,000 today. And we, we go, whoa, that's incredible. And we could do that illustration with Apple or we could do that illustration with, with Google stock or whatever it is because all of those uh, illustrations would work. But here's my point, is we ooh and ah over that and yet uh, we, 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 we have a promise from God that says what you invest in his kingdom today will yield eternal fruit. Right? We're, we're not oohing on over that, but we're oohing on over the fact that we could make $337 million for, with 100 bucks. But I'm telling you, you have something far greater, something far bigger than, than the $100 investment at $37 million that will materialize into nothing when you die. But what will materialize into something is the investment you make in the kingdom of God today God sees that you're lending to him. He's going to return it. And as you continue to invest it back in the kingdom, you have an incredible portfolio. That's not why we do it, but that's the reward. We have a reward in heaven. Jesus said, store up your treasures in heaven. If Jesus said we, sh we should do that, we probably should take his advice. He's the best stockbroker. He is the best investment advisor, financial advisor that you could ever have in your life. And he's telling you, you need to do this now. You don't have time to wait. Well, I don't have anything to invest. Jesus said it's not about the amount. It's about the heart. Remember when the poor little old lady, they were, uh, Jesus and his disciples were sitting in the temple court where the, right where the treasure uh, was, and, and they, they were sitting there across from it watching the rich people bring in all their loads of cash and throwing them in the, the box there, and and. All the disciples were oohing and on over how much these people were given. And, and then this little old lady brings two mites in, worth nothing. She puts them in the box, and Jesus said she gave more than anybody. It's not about how much you give. It's about the attitude of your heart, and it's about from where you're giving it. You know, people that have a lot of money, they can give a lot of money, and it doesn't cost them much. People that don't have a lot of money... Don't, won't necessarily, it costs them greatly to give. And here's what I'll tell you. There's a little secret in giving. If you're not giving where you're at today, don't think if you get more money, you'll give. You won't. You won't. If you're not doing it right now, you're not going to do it later. That's why he's not going to bless you with more, possibly. I'm not God. I'm not saying I'm the Holy Spirit saying that he's not going to. But, but there's a circle of blessing that happens when God entrusts and then we we give back, and then he entrusts with more. That's, that's a scriptural sort of blessing that he gives us. And so, you know, it, it, investing in the kingdom of God, he says, listen, that's a good foundation. That is a great foundation. Some of us are concerned about our, our you know, retirement, which I'm not saying don't plan. I think you should plan. I think you should be a good steward. But what foundation are you building on? Paul says investing in the future is the good foundation. And, and, and notice he says, why? Because it's all about the life to come. That is truly life, he goes on to say. You need to take hold of that which is truly life. What is truly life? Eternal life. The life that we're living now is passing away. There, 10 out of 10 people die, right? All of us, all of us, all of this life is gonna go away at some point for all of us. What we're left with is Eternity. And so, where do you want to invest? Where, where do you want to focus? Paul says that it's a good foundation to focus on the future. It's a good foundation to focus on, on true life, not on this life, but the life 
to come, eternal life. What are you living for, Christian? Are you living for the Lord? Are you living for this kingdom? Are you living for this world? What, what, what are you living for? What are you doing with the resources God has given you? That's what he's telling the people in Ephesus, man. What are you guys doing with the resources that, that, God, that God is giving you? Paul goes on here now to, to address some personal things to Timothy. He, he talks about uh, to Timothy about three specific things. Look with me in verse 20 there. It says, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent battle, babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. The commands that we find here, as I said earlier in, in the introduction, is, are really reiterations of Paul to Timothy here. Um, these are what I believe the Holy Spirit is impressing on Paul to talk to Timothy about again. Perhaps it's the things that Timothy struggles with the most. You know, we, we don't have a lot of, you know, we, we don't know these guys' personalities totally. You can kind of see them in the scriptures. You can see that John is sort of the apostle of love, and you can see Peter's just sort of a buffoon, you know, and then you can see like, you know, like us, like me more, like, but... Uh, and then you can kind of see the personalities of the, of the disciples, right? And you can kind of see, but Timothy's disciple, really his personality, what you kind of see in the scriptures is that he's timid, that he's uncertain, he's not sure. He's, he's following his calling, but he's not 100% like, um, you know, sure that he's supposed to be. And he's one of those guys that you would have a conversation with and you would, they, they would be like, um, you know, you're like, wow, the Lord really used you in this situation. You'd be like, yeah, but I don't know if this is really what I'm supposed to be doing. You're thinking like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you're not supposed to be doing this. The Lord's blessing what you're doing. Why wouldn't you be doing this? Well, I'm not sure. And, the, and it's because we, we put too much emphasis on our humanity and on our performance and on our ability to, um, you know, communicate. I, I, do, I used to do that all the time, all the time. And I would leave the pulpit going, man, I can't believe God calls me to do this. Can't believe people keep coming back, you know? And, uh, um, and, and I realized that I'm not performing. I'm not performing. I'm not here to, to make you feel happy or to, to do whatever, you know? I'm not here to make myself look better before you. I'm here because God called me to be here. And, you know, the way it comes out is the way it comes out. And I, I'm not gonna worry about that because I'm in a calling, you know? But I used to. And it used to distract me. And it used to make me, I used to be one, I used to be like Timothy, like, man, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be doing this. Maybe I should leave and go do something else, you know, uh, go crawl under a rock or something. And, and yet, that's not my calling. And Paul is reiterating to Timothy over and over and over again, dude, you're called, man. You're supposed to be doing this. I know it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like it a lot of times when you're doing the thing that you're supposed to be doing. You know, I would just say this. If you feel really good um, at what you're doing and you feel like, you know, God's lucky to have you on your team, you should really check yourself. You should really check yourself and ask if that's the Lord or is that me? You know, oh, I'm really good at this. God's so lucky to have me. I'd be like, whoa, man. <laughs> he is uh, super lucky, I guess, but... Um, <laughs> So, so Paul is, I think, encouraging Timothy, but reiterating and trying to exhort him in these areas that, that I, this is just my own personal idea, you know, that he's, 
um, that he's, he's trying to really focus on the things that he thinks Timothy is struggling the most in. And, and, and the first thing that he mentions here is, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard the word. Guard the word of God. Guard the gospel. Guard it. It means to keep in a safe place. It, it carries the idea of sealing up to protect. Any of you guys into art here? Like you're, you know, you're into like paintings or drawings and stuff. And some of you guys are super gifted at that, you know. But, but you know, when you, when you go to an art gallery or you go into certain, certain places and you see art displayed, oftentimes that art is what? Protected. And notice the signs as you walk through that that say, no flash photography. And notice the kind of lights that they have in the room and it's away from windows and all of these sorts of things. That's all by design because what they're trying to do is preserve the art. Sometimes they take documents and they take, you know, the, 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 these different really important pieces of art and stuff and they seal them up in a box, in a glass box. You can see it, but it's in a controlled environment where the temperatures are at the right temperature with the, the right humidity and all these kinds of things. They're preserving that. And that's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy to do, to take what is valuable, what has been entrusted to him and to guard it, to keep watch over it, to preserve it, to make sure that it is able to be enjoyed by others down the road. Isn't that why they do that with art? So that a hundred years from now, somebody can walk into, you know, the Louvre and look at the Mona Lisa and go, why do people come to see this? I don't understand. I don't know. I've been there. I, I'm a, I, that's what I said. My wife was like, you know nothing about art. But, but that's why they do it. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy. You need to guard it. You need to preserve it. You need to be careful. Because not only is God calling you to proclaim it, but he's calling you also to protect it. To make sure that as it goes forward, that, it's, that it remains pure, that it remains good, that it's not without men's, man's bent, that it doesn't take on someone else's thoughts about what the gospel is, but it, but it allows the gospel to say what it says. And it doesn't change. I think Tim Keller does a really good job of explaining what the gospel is. And I think it's just summarized very well, you know, for something outside of scripture. Here's what he says the gospel is. He said the gospel is this. We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hope. That is the gospel. The reality is that we are incredibly sinful people that are totally separated from God. There's no hope for you to get to God. You know, there's, there's no way that you can live your life in any kind of a way to get yourself to God. You can't do it because you're inherently evil. You're already corrupt. That's what he's saying. But, and, and he's saying, we don't even dare to believe how sinful we really are, actually. But listen, he says that we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hope. God loved you at your worst. 
your absolute worst, whatever that is. It may be, you know, whatever that might look like in your life. And he said, I love you anyway. I, I love you so much, I want to die for you. He wants to be in relationship with you. That's the gospel we're guarding. It's a message of hope that tells people that they don't have to be good enough to get it. That it's by grace and, and it's by faith. And we simply, when we come to Jesus Christ in surrender and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we receive the gospel. It comes inside of us and it bursts life. That's the gospel that we are guarding to protect. And I'll tell you, from the time that the gospel was birthed, there has always been another message. There's always been another gospel. There's always been you know, Satan's way of trying to manipulate and corrupt the gospel to make man uh, think that they have to do something in order to be saved. And that's not the true gospel. Jesus said, I didn't come for those who, who were well, I came for those who were sick. He came for people who couldn't help themselves. Contrary to, to popular belief, it's not in the Bible where it says God helps those who help themselves. That's not a scripture. Some of you are like, really? I didn't know that. I'm like, no, it's not in the Bible. But, but what is in the Bible is that Jesus Christ came to die on a cross for you and that he died for you and that through your simple surrender to him that you can be born again that you can go from life to, or go from death to life. And that, folks, is worth protecting. That is worth, um, you know, putting our lives on the line for. Paul is telling Timothy, you need to preserve and protect it from being corrupted. Not only is Timothy to guard what he's been entrusted, it is an entrustment, by the way, but secondly, he's to avoid senseless conversations. Paul says it like this here, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. You might recall, if you were with us, the way that this letter started out. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, he said, as I urge you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered, listen, in a way into vain discussions desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they are confidently are making confident assertions. Timothy was commanded from the very beginning of this letter to deal with people who were engaging in these kinds of conversations and were passing on false truth. He, he was called to deal with the false teachers it's interesting that in the very first part of, of the letter, Paul urges Timothy to command them not to teach any different doctrine. But what is he telling him now? Avoid them. 
Isn't that interesting that he said, I urge you to command them first. And we talked about that. We talked about when you come across somebody who is teaching a false doctrine or is engaged in conversations that aren't edifying to the body, that are divisive and all those kinds of things, that you command them to stop. And we talk about how we as the elders of this church, we take that seriously. And if we see, and what, what always happens is false teachers corner people, they isolate sheep, and then they, and then they try and indoctrinate them. And so we, we kind of watch that, and, and we hope you're watching that. We make sure when people come in here, as you're watching and engaging conversations, you talk to people, you kind of get to the gist of what they're, what they're saying because, um, you know, the enemy loves to pick off people who are seeking the truth. And, um, and so we take it seriously. And uh, when that happens, we address it according to what the scripture says. You command them not to teach that doctrine. And, and I said, you don't kick them out of the church, right? You command them to stop talking in those ways. Like, hey, we don't, we don't um, scripture doesn't say that. And you have a conversation with them about it. And you say, you can't say these kinds of things. We had, a, we had somebody that come into our um, open mic nights here and a while, when we just started opening. And it's, it's kind of a, uh, a cult. And it's a group of people. And what they do is they go in and they look for younger people to pray on. And then they draw them in and they kind of do this communal living thing and all of this kind of stuff. Well, they came to the coffee shop and we were already aware of, of the situation. But... You know, I, I think as, a, a, as somebody in Christ, I'm, I want to be cautious, but I also don't want to just close the door and say, hey, you know, I want to have that dialogue with people to see if we can, you know, come to some understanding of the scripture. And so we start having these conversations with these people, and, um, and they, they, I think they thought that we weren't going to do anything, and so they, they, one, one of the open mic nights, they came in here, and they started, they, all of a sudden, it's like I literally watched, we, I was watching them, there was about five guys there, and they literally just deployed into the crowd and started, you know, isolating these ladies off to the side and, and telling them, and they were, they were saying, hey, you should come join us, it's really fun, and, you know, we, we, we all live together and all this kind of stuff, and, and, and uh, um, I, I walked up, and I think, Mike, you, you were in, engaged in one of those situations with one of those people as well. And I was like, whoa, 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 what, what's going on here? What are you guys doing? You, what are you guys doing? Because I, I told them before, you're not allowed to recruit people here. You know, um, if you want to talk about things, we'll, we'll talk about them. But anyway, long story short is I had to tell them you're never welcome back here again. We had that conversation, but then there comes a point where Paul says you have to avoid them where you no longer, you know, you, there's no longer a window for you to have a dialogue with them because it's irreverent babble. It's contradictions to the scriptures, and there's no point in having those conversations. And so Paul started out with Timothy saying, I urge you to command them to stop talking that way, but he ends it saying, I, 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 I command you to avoid these people, to avoid them. It's just interesting the way that works. And uh, um, he, he wants Timothy to just be sold out on the truth. He doesn't want him to get sucked into having conversations with people. I, I can tell you that if you go down these lines with people who don't believe in the Bible, 
No, the number one conversation you need to have is what, do you, what is your source of truth? If they don't believe in the Bible, there's no conversation really, right? Other than talking about why they don't believe in the Bible. But, but here's the thing, for most people, if you're not an apologist and you're not somebody that is, you know, you feel like you, you want to engage in those things, some people are called to that. Most people, we just need to focus on sharing the gospel with people. But, but, but you know, if you don't have a source of truth to start with, then your conversation's going off into, we can make up all kinds of stuff. I mean, you know, what Paul says, it's packaged as truth. It's packaged as um, something that appears to be called knowledge. I, I think we could even say that it's, a, it's packaged in a, in, a, in a way that says it's science, but it's really not. You know, it's packaged in a way that says, hey, this is knowledge, but it's really not. It's somebody's thoughts about something. And it doesn't even fit the criteria of what true science is or what true knowledge is, but, but we, we just accept it that way. And I would say, you know, you don't have those conversations with people. You don't need to have those conversations with people. You need to guard your heart. Because what will happen is, if you're not, if you're not able, to, if you don't know the scriptures well, what's going to happen is you're going to get isolated. You're going to get backed into a corner that you cannot defend your faith, and then you're going to start questioning it. That's exactly the way this works. I'll tell you what, there are, there are, that's how, that's how cults work. Cults isolate you. They back you into a corner where you can't defend your faith, and they say, see, we have the answers. You don't even have the answers. How can you believe in things that you don't even have the answers to? That is irreverent babble, and that is the, the contradictions that are falsely called knowledge that we want to avoid. You need to avoid those people. You know, I, I personally feel a call when a Jehovah Witness walks on, knocks on my door to talk to them. I know, I know about their religion. I, I know the Bible. And so I have those conversations, not in, a, not in a mean way. I can have a great conversation with them. But they're never going to back me into a corner that I can say, well, I don't, I don't believe Jesus is God. I guess I don't know. How, how do I defend myself? I know how to because I have a lot of family members that are Jehovah's Witness, and I've kind of done that. What I'm saying is, is be careful about the conversations you allow yourself to engage in. Be focused on sharing the gospel. Be focused on telling people that they need Jesus, you know. And I'm not saying grow, you need to grow in your faith and you need to be able to defend yourself, but... Listen, there are uh, some of the conversations that you're going to have with people, as Jesus says, are like casting pearls before swine. They're not interested in hearing the truth. They want to confuse you. They want to make you doubt what you believe. So be careful with those conversations. Paul says, by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. What does he mean? That, that, that word swerve there, it literally means to to go astray as a result of departing from the truth to abandon. It, it carries the idea of an archer missing his aim, totally off the target. It's speaking of apostasy. How can that happen? How can it happen to somebody who knows Jesus? Well, John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, how it might happen. I quote this all the time because I think it's so foundational to us understanding our security and our salvation. And, and John says in 1 John 2, 19, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they 
all are not of us. What I'm saying, there's people that are in the church that aren't really born again, that think they're born again, but aren't really born again. There's pastors that stand in pulpits that are the same way. And that's why it's so important you, you know the word, you know, because listen, there, there's a guy, Joshua Harris, uh, a couple years ago. The guy is, the guy's like, you know, a, a huge author, you know, Don't Kiss Dating Goodbye or whatever. I don't know what all books he wrote, you know, all these different books on, um, you know, be, finding a woman or whatever. Not, not finding a woman, that's like a dating site. That's not what I mean, but it's like a Christian dating thing. No, but he wrote these books on what it means to court and all that kind of stuff, right? And then he got married. And um, anyway, he, he was a pastor wrote all these books and different things, and then he went to higher learning, going to become Dr. Joshua Harris. And guess what? By the time he's done with his seminary, he's no longer a Christian. He's no, I, I just don't believe in that anymore. I'm not sure I believe in that at all. I don't, I'm not sure you believed in it at all in, in the beginning. you know. Um, and I'm not one to judge. It just goes to show us that's why Paul said, you know, we, need to, um, we need to check ourselves to, to, to really consider where we're at with the Lord. Are we really genuine with the Lord? And uh, this guy ends up leaving the faith, departing the faith. Why? Because John says they went out from us because they were not of us. There was never really a true born-again experience. You have to be born again. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 3. He said, what must I do to be saved? You have to be born again. You can't be, the flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You have to be born of the spirit. You have to be born again. And there are people that go through their entire lives that are never born again. They have, they have an understanding, a knowledge, a working knowledge of the Lord and all that kind of stuff, but they've never had that conversion. They've never truly, you know, been born again from death to life. And that's, what, that's what, what's necessary um, and, and honestly, the enemy knows. He loves to pr plague on those, those people. And then, and then those kind of things get on the news and they say, see, even these guys don't believe what they, even, the, even the, the pastors don't believe what they, in the Bible anymore, you know? And it's, it's just the enemy's attack on, on the word of God. Do not allow yourself to get into those conversations. Paul ends this with, I think the key to the Christian life. And he says this, look at verse, the end of verse 21. He's exhorting Timothy. It's an ending, it's a salutation. Grace be with you, but there's a message in it. Timothy has been entrusted with the gospel of grace and this grace must always accompany him everywhere he goes. Grace must always be with you if you're a believer. You receive the gospel by grace and you give the gospel by grace. What is grace? Unmerited favor, not getting what you deserve. You're giving people what they don't deserve. And so you, you, grace always has to be with you. That God is the God of grace. He's given us the gospel of grace. And so we go into the world with, with the grace of God and we deploy it to people. We give it out to people. We serve it up to people. We are trophies of his grace. You've been born again. You're a trophy of his grace. You were saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. So remember that. Remember how you were born again. Remember how the Lord worked in your life. It was an act of grace, and it's a continued act of grace. So the next time you mess up, remember 
It's by grace that you are what you are. The Lord covers you. He forgives you. He who watches over you. He, he washes you. He's a God that gives us what we don't deserve. He's a God of grace. But I also want you to remember that when somebody messes you over, that you're called to give grace. It's not deserved. They don't deserve it, but that's, that's not grace. If somebody deserves it, then that's not grace. He wants you to extend grace to people. We're a people of grace. He's a God of grace. So let grace be with you as well. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for just reminding us this morning of all the things that we've talked about through this book already, Lord, and yet just the reiterations of the exhortation to Timothy from Paul regarding the rich, Lord, and then, and then some personal exhortations and commands. We pray, Father, right now that you help us to apply what we've heard today, that you help us to um, be, be people that are committed to uh, investing in the kingdom of God, that we would build our future uh, in heaven and not here on earth. You remind us that there's an eternity coming and that we need to invest in those things, Father. Help us to use all that you've given to us, God, for your glory. We just pray, Father, even now that maybe some of us are convicted by the things that we've heard today, Lord, that you help us. We just talked about grace. Lord, help us to receive the grace that you've given even now. Maybe repent, Lord, turn away from the things that maybe we've, our, our hands, our feet, our minds have fell, uh, fell subject to, and that even now, Lord, we, we just allow you to wash us with grace. I pray that you would help us, Father, too, as we um, close now, that you just move in our hearts and that you uh, finalize the things that, that need to be done in our hearts that we would leave different people. Let, it, let us not just leave here the same, Lord. And we just ask that you would move in these last moments as we close in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.